Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And today, we're talking about the funniest filmmakers around, the Coen Brothers. My god, it's been over 170 episodes. How are we now only getting to these guys, the the entry level, the, the <laughs> filmmakers that every self-described cinephile comes to love? Too popular, Too popular. I think, yeah. yeah. Do, do you ever feel passionately about the Coen Brothers? Because I, you know, I saw Raising Arizona... And I loved it. And every other Coen Brothers movie that I saw following that, I liked most of them. But my one thought was like, man, none of these are raising Arizona. Huh, that's funny. You know, I mean, it, it's weird because, you know, I've seen The Big Lebowski probably 10 times. Mm-hmm. I've seen many of their movies multiple times. They've made seven or eight movies that I think are masterpieces. And so I do like them a lot, but I also don't feel like any particular personal relationship with them. But yeah, what I was going to say is that other than Raising Arizona, it's very rare. I'm like, I'm going to reach for this Coen brother film as my comfort food in the way that I hear people talk about Big Lebowski. I mean, I'd have to say that Blood Simple, when I made Impossible Horror, that was one of our main points of reference. Mm. But it's also not a film that I'm like, ah, love it, seen it a hundred times. Well, I do think they're like some of the best filmmakers working, but I also think like, it's like chocolate or pizza mm-hmm. it's, or Alfred Hitchcock. You know, these <laughs> yeah. are things where it's like, yeah, yeah. All the edible things. It's like, we all agree that these things are great. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, but but it's like, it's not mine. Yeah. Right? You know, I was really a uh, Coen Brothers and Barry Sonnefeld kind of guy. Once he left the fold. Once they started working with Deacons and started to rock that auto... Uh, color correction yeah too beautiful yeah Yeah. it was with um uh, oh brother where art thou which was famous for being the first uh digital intermediate where they color corrected in the computer i'm like oh no no thank you i'm just kidding roger deakins makes a beautiful image (laughs) now for this episode we were trying to think of what's a what's a fun way we can approach this very familiar topic and we decided we're going to talk about fargo yeah no no country for old men as you can tell from the clickbaity headline we watch the movies that people consider their worst. Which even that is not a particularly unique angle. I mean, no. every day on Twitter, somebody is ranking the Coen Brothers movies. Mm-hmm. Somewhere there's a contrarian argument for every one of the movies that, that they've done that's considered bad. So how about we start with what people consider their worst, The Lady Killers. Mm-hmm. 2004's remake of the classic British comedy that I remember seeing when it came out, my mouth agape going, what? <laughs> well, this was a particularly rough patch in their career because it came out mere months after one of the other movies we'll be talking about, Intolerable Cruelty. And this one-two punch of poorly received comedies, you know, I think had some people wondering what, what, what's like, happened with these guys. Have they lost it? Like, ha- has the passion gone away? Can't they give Barry Sonnefeld a call? Oh no, he's directing MIB too. <laughs> now, I saw both of these movies at the time. In the theaters? In theaters. Wow. And uh, I was very disappointed by both of them. And I came this week hoping to reevaluate them, hoping to find... So did I. Spark. I came to these movies going, now I've watched all the Coen brothers of... I understand what they do and what they do not do, so I do not have set expectations coming to these films. So I popped in The Lady Killers, and I'm like, make me laugh. Okay, now before we get into our reaction to The Lady Killers, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Do the Coen brothers hate their characters? So, what a hacky thing to ask, right? If you had asked me this question before watching these movies specifically, (laughs) I would say, absolutely not. Filmmakers cannot make movies if they do not feel 
some emotional investment in their characters. Movies that are loved as much as these pictures are. And and first of all, characters are fictional. It's mm-hmm. not like you're torturing a real person. And just because a character is perceived to not be intelligent doesn't mean that the filmmakers and writers dislike those characters. And just because you put them through the ringer doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're a sadist. People often go through the ringer in real life, too. And, you know, sometimes I watch the Coen Brothers movies and a movie like Inside Lewin Davis... As much as he suffers in that movie, or a serious man, uh, as much as that character suffers, you kind of identify with it, or you empathize with it. Inside Lewin Davis, I think, is sort of a comforting movie in a way, because it's like, yes, this is a movie that's like validating the experience of failure. I think that the issue that people come up with, especially people that don't like the Coen brothers, is that they're approaching it so ironically <laughs> that... The intention is for the viewer to be like, ah, look at these dummies. I can't believe these yeah. are the decisions that they're making. Yeah, you're, they're looking down their nose on them, which mm-hmm. is often not the case, I think. You know, the dude from The Big Lebowski, they I'm sure they think that he's a little silly, but they also mm-hmm. view him with great tenderness. And even some of the characters in Fargo, I mean, who hasn't felt greedy? You can identify with William H. Macy and Steve Buscemi in that movie. Yeah, because they're pathetic characters, but they're still like an emotional backbone to all the decisions that they're making. They may be making dumb decisions, they may be perceived as dumb characters, but mostly you can understand how they're getting to these terrible points that they're getting. Yeah, like, they are desperate men. And also, they're played by great actors who can really lean into the human elements of them. I mean, uh, The Lady Killers has a leading man that never returned to the Coen folds ever again, Tom Hanks, the most lovable actor in American cinema history. And, you know, I'm actually going to say, I think it's too bad he never returned to the Mm. Coen brothers. I think that... He has the perfect nice guy imagery to anchor their pictures. And imagine Tom Hanks being an asshole. Mm-hmm. You don't get that enough in movies. Like like, like the Coen brothers could bring that out. And he's a great asshole. Just look at all the romantic comedies that he did. And that like from a distance now you look back at them and you're like, oh, he's kind of charming, but he's really swarmy that as well. Fucking evil gentrifier from You've <laughs> yeah. Got Mail. <laughs> so in The Lady Killers, he plays a Kentucky colonel who rooms with Irma P. Hall playing a uh, kindly old woman. So he tells the landlady that he needs the basement to practice with his medieval music group. But what he's really doing is digging into the casino next door to steal a million dollars, I believe. Mm-hmm. Which is not a lot split like. There's a lot of people on his team. <laughs> right. When is this movie set? It's set in the present day, right? Yeah, yeah. 2004. Oh, right, because there's a reference to Montel. <laughs> That's right. Which sticks out like a bit of a sore thumb, I think. So, you know, earlier in their career, the Coen brothers were often remarked upon for often working, you know, like Quentin Tarantino in archetypes and cliches mm-hmm. from movies. And their detractors accused them of sort of looking down their nose at these archetypes, like, oh, look at how look at how silly this is. Or imagine if this cliche, this movie pastiche were enacted by these silly small people. Mm-hmm. One of the problems of working in archetypes, big, broad archetypes, is, you know, they represent things in the real world. You're not just making fun of your character. You're making fun of something that they symbolize. Yeah, black people. Black people. (laughs) Specifically. And Asian people (laughs) in The Lady Killers. That's right. And I'm sure if you asked the Coen brothers, they would say something like, oh, well, in The Lady Killers, we're making fun of everybody equally. Oh, yeah. Equal opportunity offenders. Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Um, One of the big problems to Lady Killers. And also, not that funny. (laughs) Not that funny. It's a very kind of over the top. And there's a gag where J.K. Simmons has irritable bowel syndrome. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) 
Um, and, and God. It's like there's an Asian guy who doesn't talk and is always smoking. Some it, of the Marlon Wayans shtick in this movie uh, where he's like talking about how he loves women's asses. Yeah, it's real bad. And it goes on forever. Lots right? of um, racial slurs thrown out, mostly by uh, the black characters, but they were written by the Coen brothers. I like to imagine the Coens, you know, uh, bent over their typewriter <laughs> writing some of this dialogue. So this movie doesn't really have that much of interest. First of all, it's a remake of a well-loved British film, which stars Alec Guinness, who gives as broad a performance as Tom Hanks does, but it's different in very specific ways. Well, I sort of like Tom Hanks's performance in this movie, but I think it would be better served by a better movie. Yes. Like, he's he really commits to mm. it, and he's very over the top. But, I mean, the, the movie around him, the only person in the movie who I think really plays it real and is really grounded is Irma P. Hall. Well, didn't she win some awards for her performance? Oh, thank you for cueing me. <laughs> yeah, on this. no problem. She won the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival. Not Best Actress, the jury prize. And she shared it with A Pitch of Pong, Thakul's Tropical Malady. So, Tropical Malady. Her performance in The Lady Killers on equal footing. What strange decision led to that tie. Well, we looked at the jury that year, and it was like Quentin Tarantino, because they gave it to Old Boy that year. Yeah. And also, Troy Harkos yeah. on the jury. Yeah. And supposedly, he pushed Tropical Malady. Yeah. Tarantino didn't like it. That's what that's <laughs> Shocking. Apparently, yeah, yeah, but... So I think The Lady Killers doesn't have a lot of momentum. It doesn't feel tightly wound. Mm -hmm. it, it feels rather slow and lackadaisical. It's not suspenseful. Yeah. And when it does start to break down and people start dying or being injured, you don't care about them. There's no humanity there. And it's also not grotesque enough mm -hmm. to be the big farce the Coen brothers think they're making. Yeah. If it was, I think there would be more like, oh, like, whoa, I can't believe they did that. But that never really happens because even when like like body parts start to get dismembered, it's grounded in a way where you're just kind of sitting there and being like, eh, that's unpleasant. <laughs> and as to the movie's treatment of race, I mean, this, there's no pleasant way to say this. The movie has two kinds of black characters. Mm -hmm. They're the ones like Irma P. Hall, who are maybe well-meaning, but they're uh, not tuned into the world, and so they donate to institutions like Bob Jones University. Which is the punchline of the film. A famously racist mm -hmm. evangelical school. So those people, you know, don't know their own interests. And then there are the younger black people. And there's a lot of them. Uh, as personified by Marlon Wayans in this film, who don't know anything about history, like... J.K. Simmons and Marlon Wayans get into a fight where J.K. Simmons says, do you know who the Freedom Riders are? And yeah. he doesn't. So those are the two the two camps. And I got to say, I don't know if I want to be hearing this from the Coen brothers. No. <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to hear us talk about this on this podcast yeah. as two white guys. But I also think it's the only fair way to deal with this yeah. movie is to it, say what it's saying. And, you know, there's articles that you'll find. Of course there are, because the Coen brothers are as popular as they are. Trying to argue like, ah, but you don't understand the ironic vision that they're putting towards no, the No, I screen. know what Bob Jones University is. Yeah, yeah. I get it. <laughs> the problem is that you, like, all they're doing is continuing the stereotypical portrayal of these characters that have existed since the dawn of cinema. And, There's no, yeah. like, ironic commentary that they're making here. It's not bamboozled or anything like that. And I don't think they like these characters. I think, at most, they're a little condescending to the Irma mm -hmm. P. Hall character. They're sort of... Who you know, I remember very vividly as a teenager thinking, oh... 
she must know what's going on. And she's like kind of like snaking them along. She's like a mastermind through the situation. And Tom H- Hanks thinks that he has one over her. Mm-hmm. But nope. The Coen Brothers is like, oh no, she's even dumber than everybody else. You know, the thing about the Coen Brothers is uh, when they're interviewed, they're very opaque mm-hmm. and their creative process is very mysterious. Like, how do these two guys work together? Who writes what? You know, we don't know. And so, and their movies are so like precise mm-hmm. and just technically perfect. And they're full of little details, you know, kind of Kubrickian in mm-hmm. a way. Oh yeah, look, there's Bruce Campbell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, like a, a serious man is is full of details, like a Jacques Tati movie. Mm-hmm. And so you think about them, like, well, these guys really know what they're doing. These guys are totally so. In control. Yeah, they. If I like their other movies, which are these kind of hermetically sealed, perfect objects. This one must be just as good as well. Well, I remember there was some discourse around the Ballad of Buster Scruggs and yes. a treatment of the indigenous characters where there were some who would say, uh, oh, well, they must they must know what they're doing. They're dealing in tropes, they're dealing in archetypes, and they're doing it ironically. And I don't think that's really been backed up by the interviews they've given about the movie. And, you know, I think the fact that they are... They, Out of touch white guys? Well, yeah, and they, and they have a certain limited curiosity. Mm. Or when they deal with characters outside of their immediate worldview, their curiosity is... Like, all the interviews that they did around Buster Scruggs, people would bring up, like, you know, the Native Americans are portrayed as savages in this movie. And the Coen brothers would just follow it up with, well, yes, but that's how they were always portrayed mm. in these classic Western tales that we're adapting. See the book that opens at the beginning of Buster Buster Scruggs, and it's like, okay, but you're deconstructing everything else in the movie, but you're just taking this trope, which is the most offensive one, as face value, because you like that. That's what you grew up on, and you want to recreate that. Right. Like, that is a problematic direction. Yeah. So, okay, we didn't like the Lady Killers. Not good. <laughs> um, I While watching it, I'm like, did the Coen Brothers have a contract they had to get out of or something? Like yeah. Lou Reed, Metal Machine <laughs> music? But how about the movie they made right before that, Intolerable Cruelty, which uh, I was also disappointed in at the time. Another film that was just kind of brushed away as a nothing when it was released. And I also felt that way when I saw it on DVD. I was like... Ah. This is nothing like Raising Arizona, I'm sure, (laughs) crossed my mind. And I sat down and watched it this time, and it ended, and I went, oh, I really like that. Uh, I had the same experience, actually. (laughs) I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I I was trying to think, what did I not like about this when it came out? And the only explanation is that it just felt like minor colors, Mm. which it is, but whatever. It's a a very enjoyable romantic comedy in the sort of screwball tradition. Like, from the beginning, the Coens are always basing their films on templates of well-worn genres. Mm -hmm. And Intolerable Cruelty is that fluffy Tracy and Hepper and romantic comedy, like Adam's Rib and stuff like that. And like the Mm Rat-A-Tat, His Girl Friday dialogue. And I think that George Clooney... He loves being in Coen Brothers movie, and it's obvious that he does, because he is the handsome leading man. Mm-hmm. And here he gets to be the muggin, like, rubber-faced, Jim Carrey-like character. Yeah, he always gets to play dumb yeah. characters. <laughs> and he loves it. Well, in this one, you know, he plays the slickest divorce attorney in town, and uh, he encounters Catherine Zeta-Jones, who is suing his client, Edward Herman, for divorce. And he falls in love with her, but she's kind of a shark mm-hmm. who is always... Um, 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 marrying rich men and uh, divorcing them for their money. Basically, it turns into like a heist, mm-hmm. but one of the best decisions they make is that it doesn't end with the reveal of that heist. It goes further beyond that. Mm-hmm. And like all the different angles get to be played. Billy Bob Thornton gets to show show up, hamming it up as like a cowboy. I mean, it's 
a great mix of, you know, big star performances, mm-hmm. you know, George Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones sort of at their peak physical attractiveness. And <laughs> the Coen brothers can also parody the yeah, genre yeah. that they're adapting as well. Like George Clooney has this big speech like Tom Cruise does in Jerry Maguire, where he's like, I choose love. Yeah. <laughs> and it's scored like it would be in a Hollywood movie and everybody starts applauding. Jerry but Maguire must joke. have been in mind. Yes, that, guaranteed. Right? But, you know, you've got these big stars and you've also got a bunch of great character actors looking mm-hmm. like Coen Brothers gargoyles. And, yeah. And, you know, uh, the Coen Brothers, the technical quality of their movies is is really something. I mean, they are great storytellers. Oh, yeah. They're great dialogue writers. The cinematography is always exquisite. Uh, when the movie started, I was like, I miss Phil. Like, <laughs> yeah. instantly when it started to play. A thought that I'm sure did not cross my mind when I saw it on DVD when I was, I don't know, 13. <laughs> and their attention to detail is, mm. I mean, they, they do have a genuinely strange way of looking at the world. That scene where Edward Herman is like jumping on a bed with a bunch of women surrounding him. And there's a giant train behind him. And they're all going like choo-choo and he's yeah. wearing a conductor's hat. I mean, what other filmmaker would put that I in I mean, a the Coen brothers also like love the sound of like someone sitting in a chair and it's just going like, eh! Yeah. Like you can tell they're like just laughing it up, writing it up. You know, a movie like this, I think it works so well compared to the Lady Killers because they're dealing with rich people. Mm-hmm. They're not parodying uh, the lower class like or minorities. So it's different to like make George Clooney or Catherine Zeta-Jones look like giant buffoons. Earlier in their career and I guess still now they were often accused of being these like these snobs or these Mm -hmm. equal opportunity like uh, a recurring character in their movies is the well-meaning but stupid middle class liberal Mm -hmm. like Barton Fink. Yeah. I know some of their detractors probably a lot of their more left-leaning detractors uh, accuse them of being guys who just sort of believe in nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, Which Real um, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I don't know. There's a strong sense of Old Testament justice in their films. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> but I do love the ending of Intolerable Cruelty, where it just gets all wrapped up in the neatest of bows. Yeah. That nobody essentially suffers, except for poor Erwin Keyes, whose um, death in this film is the one thing I remembered from seeing it the first time. Yeah. Anyway, after this one-two punch, they disappeared for three years and they returned with No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. The rest was history. And then a year later, they reached number one at the box office for the first time in their careers, I believe, with their follow-up, Burn After Reading. (laughs) You started talking about the movie and just had a little bit of difficulty remembering the title. And I was like, did we watch another movie? And I think that's perfect because of what Burn After Reading is. I remember after seeing No Country for Old Men and loving it, being like, what are they going to come out with next? Which was the same feeling that I had when they made um, Inside Lewin Davis. And I'm like, what are they going to come out with next? Because there's a feeling walking into one of their movies that this one could be a masterpiece. Yeah, and they just made a masterpiece, which means the studio gave them carte blanche to do whatever they want. So they're just going to knock this one out of the park. I saw Burn After Reading in a cinema, Mm -hmm. and I remember it ending and me going, what what was that? And, you know, this story, it's about all these people thinking they have important information when they don't. And it just blowing yeah. it up in the, all the participants' faces. The inciting incident is that John Malkovich plays an analyst who works for the CIA who is demoted because he's an alcoholic. So he quits. And he says, I'm going to write an absolutely tell-all autobiography with a lot of uh, dangerous secrets. And it leaks, but actually there's nothing in the book that would matter at all. Yeah, but everybody thinks it's very important. Mm-hmm. And all these really dumb characters that includes George Clooney as an adulterer, 
um, Frances McDormand as um, a woman that wants plastic surgery. Brad Pitt as just a dumb gym trainer. The two of them work at the same gym together. Yeah. And Frances McDormand is always doing online dating. Mm-hmm. And yeah, is saving up so that she get a breast augmentation and yep. this and that. Um, and the thesis of the movie is that uh, everybody who works in government and intelligence is an idiot. Mm-hmm. And also most other people are idiots, too. Yeah, I, I believe that thesis. <laughs> it's it's d- a despairing vision on par with Bresson's L'Argent. It could essentially mm. be called Shaggy Dog the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like it ends with the character going, wait, 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 what? what what's happening? I, I don't really understand. Oh, it didn't matter? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, let's. How about we just never mention this again? <laughs> now, uh, I saw this movie in a theater too, and I left angry, and, mm-hmm. I, and I hated it. Yeah. And over, you didn't get it, Will. Well, I, I guess not. And then over the years, I would often hear people defend it, and you know, looking back on it, you're like, oh yeah, brilliant. Everything I just said sounds great. Yeah. And so I'm more, re- I'm a little more receptive to what the movie is saying now, but I still did not enjoy the experience of revisiting this movie. Well, let me be the devil's advocate for a movie that I do not love either, and say like, I get it, like. They shoot it like a spy thriller. It's like the parallaxed view. It's mm-hmm. paranoia. Yeah. Like, who's this person following me in a car? What's going on? Is someone really in charge? Everyone is giving it their all. From George Clooney's just like mugging it up uh-huh. to Brad Pitt also mugging it up. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I didn't love Brad Pitt in this movie like I felt like I should. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's his fault because he really throws himself into it. He doesn't. No one has anything to do. Well, that Brad Pitt character is such a caricature like yeah. there's no kind of warmth in the creation of no. that character i think it's like from brad pitt the, i mean the only one you know we talked about like sympathy is like francis mcdormand who really wants this thing because she thinks it's important to her even though there's characters around her who are like no it, it doesn't really matter yeah but that's what she sets her sights on or <laughs> george clooney who's cheating on his wife endlessly but the second that she breaks up with him he goes into like a massive depressive funk yeah <laughs> that's but, funny well i think the most sympathetic character in the movie is Richard Jenkins. Uh, yeah. And as for, br- who has a brutal fate at the end of the movie. <laughs> as for Francis McDormand, you know, I, I feel like such a hack saying the Coen brothers hate their characters. Mm-hmm. But I think the Coen brothers don't like this character. Really? Well, I think the movie is so kind of, I think the movie does look down its nose at mm-hmm. Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it regards her as a little pathetic. But there isn't uh, like some sympathy there. Like, oh, she can't see that she doesn't need these cosmetic surgeries to I, make herself more beautiful because people already like her the way she is. Well, I guess there is sympathy. I mean, mm-hmm. she is a tragic character. Yeah. But, and she gets uh, away with everything that she wants. But it's a very thin line, yeah. isn't it? You know, like I don't feel the Coens. I mean, it almost feels know. like they're doing a play with what they did on No Country for Old Men. Because remember when that movie came out, people were like, my God, I can't believe they killed the main character off screen. Spoiler mm. for an Oscar winning best yeah. picture film. And Burn After Reading does very similar things. At one point, they're like, oh, yeah, we shot that main character yeah. <laughs> when we saw and we never even see it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the Coen's going like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And like, if you buy into that end joke. The rest of the movie will work for you. And I think that's something that, like, Burn After Reading, I hated it when I saw it. And it's because whoever cuts the Coen Brothers trailers are amazing. Like, there's never been a Coen Brothers trailer that didn't get me hyped up for what I'm about to see. Mm-hmm. But then they never really give you what, as an audience, you want. And, you know, people will say, oh, well, that's where their true genius lies. But as a viewer, you're like, what the hell is this? When it's as paper thin as something like Burn After Reading. Yeah. The destination didn't feel worth the journey mm-hmm. to me on this trip. 
it felt to me like the thesis of the movie was not particularly uh, textured and layered mm-hmm. and multidimensional to spend this much time with these unpleasant characters who the Coen brothers don't like. Yeah. And um, it's not even, you know, if you could get away with like, look how stylish this film is. <laughs> like, can you imagine the Coen brothers shooting it like Tony Scott or something like yeah. that? That would make it even funnier because it's still in their style. But look, the Coen brothers are all knowing they're mm. wise. They meant to do it. And they're brilliant, and I'm sure I'm wrong, folks. Did we talk about Hail Caesar when it came out? Because I feel like we were doing the podcast at oh, that time. Oh, maybe. I, I remember being a little lukewarm on that one, too. Mm. You watched it this week. I did. You know, I was writing on Letterboxd at the time, and I w- essentially said, I like all these things in this movie, but you know, I don't really have any reason to care. And this time watching it, I'm like, I like all these things in this movie. Mm. And that reason to care isn't really there. The, the Josh Brolin as a center character and his moral conflict is not that compelling to me because mm-hmm. it essentially boils down to ah the magic of Hollywood isn't that better than anything else even things that could change the world but but most of the movie shows Hollywood as being kind of corrupt and ridiculous. terrible yeah, and it yeah, needs yeah. to be but then you also get like a hilarious parody of a Roy Rogers western oh yeah you get an aquatic musical number Channing Tatum being his gayest Gene Kelly well would that it were so simple what's, <laughs> yeah. what's that line yeah. that's a funny would, I can't even say it it's like would that it were so simple with yeah. Ralph Fiennes like all that stuff I like so this time when I watched it I'm like oh I get it the Coen brothers just wanted to show all this stuff (laughs) the big dramatic push I expected from what had been in Inside Lewin Davis was not in this picture because they had just done it Inside Lewin Davis and they didn't want to repeat themselves when they're given complete creative control they usually just follow their passions without always finding a reason to put it up on screen Uh, well you also watched this week a movie that i remember liking quite a bit Mm -hmm. and is probably actually their most expensive and least seen movie which (laughs) is the hudsucker proxy the joel silver mega production i I watched half of it before Mm -hmm. coming here so which you tell me is the better half yes I mean, the Hudsucker Proxy, when people tell me that they love it, I go, oh yeah, I understand. Like, it's all the German expressionism writ large on screen, mixed in with, like, Frank Capra um, storytelling, and Tim Robbins as this, like, goofy character in the center, and... The biggest issue with the film is that it doesn't land the ending. Like, it wants to do this Capra-esque kind of, ah, there was it was happy at the end and everything came together. But you feel the Coen brothers are still looking at it ironically, like, Haha, isn't this a joke? Mm. And because of that, the film is hurt because the Tim Robbins character plays like this lovable goofball that turns kind of mean by the end. And he never comes back from that meanness. And that's a big ish, like storytelling issue. Mm-hmm. That if you kind of like this character because he's the underdog, then he becomes the overdog and pushes it too far, but is never redeemed in any way, then you're like, well, I don't care about this. Mm-hmm. Like, you've pushed it too far. And if they say, ah, that's the joke. Well, it's like Burn After Reading, where I'm like, oh, okay. But I don't want to sit here Well, <laughs> watch great, it. Great sets, though. Oh, beautiful sets. Beautiful camera moves. Sam Raimi, his only uh, credit as second unit director, he shot the whole montage. Oh, uh, really? With the hula hoop. The hula hoop. Yeah. He's, he's one of the guys who's talking, who's like, what should we call it? I remember uh, that. Blah, blah, yeah. blah, 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 yeah. blah. Yep. He also plays the giggling gunman in Miller's Crossing. I do like Tim Robbins in that movie, and I think Tim Robbins provides a bit of an emotional center to it. Yeah, but like I said, that he, mm-hmm. he gets pushed too far, mm-hmm. where he's like, ah, your idea's dumb. He basically becomes the boss that dismissed mm-hmm. him. And I also like Paul Newman mm-hmm. as like the evil CEO, and Jennifer Jason Lee as the his girl Friday, fast talking, and her sidekick, Bruce Campbell. <laughs> yes, I was about to say. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love all of that stuff. And it's just like they don't stick the ending. For people that haven't seen it, there's an element of magical realism that plays in the end. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is the stereotypes that it, um, yeah, you know, yeah. accepts to get there. The, the Bill Cobbs character specifically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The um, Bagger Vance, if you will. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Again, like Tim Robbins is such an asshole up until that point, uh-huh. And he never buys it back. Like he just dismisses Jennifer Jason Lee at one point. And she never reappears for the rest of the movie. Oh. Which makes me wonder, like, is there, like, a long... Like, this film was almost two hours. So it's, like, wheezing past the finish line. So it makes me wonder if there was more to it. I mean, the sets are so beautiful. It's the kind of movie that always appears in the one perfect shot stuff. Yeah. Because of how, like, stylish it is. Mm-hmm. Well, the Coen brothers, uh, I'm sure you've all seen all their movies. Check your shelf right now. Uh, pull, <laughs> pull down that copy of No Country for Old Men. Intolerable Cruelty. Pull down your Criterion edition of Blood Simple and uh, pull down your DVD of Blood Simple with the fake audio commentary by a film historian. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> very funny. I mean, that's another example of like they don't take anything seriously, right? Mm-hmm. The Hudson Proxy has an interview at the beginning of the uh, screenplay book mm-hmm. with Joel Silver, where he says the Coen Brothers are incompetent; they don't know what they're doing, <laughs> and they're just like jokes. And it was written by the Coen Brothers. Yes, that's it funny. was not uh, Joel Silver. Who gave that interview so i mean that is the thing that when you watch these comedies there's no center to them it's just everybody's miserable everybody's bad so it's tough to like them well we've settled it the coen brothers unfunny their, hate their characters <laughs> yeah, no. finally the dispute is settled yep anytime somebody has to uh reference that or an argument breaks up on twitter which i assume it happens a dozen times just a day. Just them here and <laughs> yeah. say that we solved it. So, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the first letter is from Jack Burnaham. He goes, hey, Justin and Will, this might seem like an odd question, but what's the longest period of time you spent without watching films? I asked because I was ill recently with something that left me unable to watch movies for about eight months. Won't bore you with the details. There was some brain stuff. Well, I hope you're feeling better now, Jack. And it was probably the longest I've gone without watching movies in my life. I'm okay now, of course, but I was just curious if either of you have been diverted from cinema for a notable period of time. Love the show, guys. It's by far my favorite film podcast and maybe even my favorite podcast. Whoa. Ah, thanks. Thanks for the many hours of cool stuff. It's appreciated. Warm regards, Jack. Thank you. Well, um, I remember I went to summer camp once when I was a kid. (laughs) And uh, that was a month there. And I don't think I watched any movies during that time. Uh, Except... That's actually not quite true. There were two movie nights during the month of summer camp. So we were all, I guess, 10 or 11 years old. And the movie nights, for some reason, were Ronan with Robert De Niro. Wait, how old were you at the summer 10 camp? 10 or 11, yeah. And they yeah. played Ronan? Ronan. Probably the... rated 14A in Canada. So they're like, that is fine. I mean, it was just a bunch of like 17-year-old counselors who were like, yeah, you know, we like Ronan. Let's watch that. <laughs> so we watched Ronan. And then we also watched Rounders with, wow. uh, with Matt Damon. So. <laughs> What? So the counselors were just like, hey, that's what we want to watch. Yeah, basically. So those were, I mean, uh, I guess apart from that, I didn't watch any movies during that time. And I was barely conscious during those. I mean, at that age, I wasn't a huge movie fan, so it was not like a big deal. When I was a kid, I actually didn't watch that many movies because my parents didn't own VHS tapes. Going to the cinema was a big deal. And so other than that, like it was whatever I could catch on TV, which was not very much because I was only allowed to watch television during the week from 
I think it was, it must have been five to seven, because five is when The Simpsons were on, and that was, like, the big moment. It's so much easier now, though. I mean, you can watch a movie on your laptop anywhere in the world. Yeah. So. And as far as, like, other periods in that, I mean, I'm sure I've gone a week or two. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe a few years ago when I was, like, writing or editing something where I'm like, all right, no movies until this is done. Like uh, during Impossible Horror. Yeah, or, or Teddy Bomb. Yeah, like, I didn't yeah. have that much time to watch movies. But other than that, like, I remember somebody once asking me, like, is it an addiction? Could you go uh, through a day without watching a movie? And at the time I was like, yeah, no problem. And then I was thinking about it, like, have I? And I have. If you look at Letterboxd, there's like sometimes two, three, four, five days go by without me watching movies just because I don't have time. Or I'm doing something else, like watching television. All right. Well, thank you very much for the letter, Jack. And the next letter is from Emil Dirks. He goes, hello, gents. It's not often that I have the pleasure of enjoying your musings while on the road, but by sheer coincidence, I happen to be in Hong Kong when you released your wonderful episode on Anne Hoy. I always enjoy your podcast, but this one had an added poignancy as I listened to it after participating in the demonstrations against a proposed extradition bill between Hong Kong and China. Oh, wow. It was humbling to be part of such a monumental display of people power. And much as you both rightly lament the demise of Hong Kong cinema under the influence of Chinese censors, so too are the people of this city concerned that one day their courts will be at the mercy of China's notoriously flawed judicial system. Needless to say, your ode to one of Hong Kong's greatest filmmakers just hit a little closer to home. In other news, you'll be pleased to note that later that week, I stopped by Chunking Mansions nice. to buy a stack of Amitabh Bakshan DVDs. Nice, wow. <laughs> As a proud member of the Important Cinema Club Nation, I could do no less. I hope you, like, drew our faces and the logo yeah. <laughs> somewhere in the Chunking Mansion. Like Batman's logo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then fans can go and, like, find it and be like, ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, if you're willing to devote your time to discussing Polly Buddy Shore and the cinematic direct of Latter-day Adam Sandler... Can you please finally record that episode about Steve Odenkirk's some films you once threatened to subject us to? I can't be the only loyal listener who wants you to revisit the stagnant well water that is Mr. Odenkirk's comedy career. Yours, Emil. Well, the context of that, if we have any new listeners, is that after watching Kung Pao Mm -hmm. enter the fist... We were often talking about what if we watched every single one of Steve Odekirk's thumb movies. Threatened to watch them all. And it happened twice where I gave listeners, I'm like, become Patreon subscribers. And if we hit this number, we'll do it. But, you know, the reality of that is that everybody that wants us to do it is already Patreon subscribers. So we could have watched Bat Thumb, Thumb Tannic. Yep. You know, but the, people didn't step up. And I still don't think we should. <laughs> you know what? If we get to 250 by the end of next month, we'll watch all those movies. I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. 250 by the end of, next, by the end of <laughs> there July. There is no way that's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. So. But if it does... Sign up all your friends. Yep. We're going to be watching all of those thumb movies. About that protest, I mentioned on that episode that it had happened and it had made no difference. But more protests continued. And eventually they said, all right, we're going to just table that law for now. So, you know, it works. Protest works. Great. So even against China. But, you know, it doesn't work. The fact that China doesn't want to show any movies anymore. Not even $80 million blockbusters. Did you hear the one that was supposed to open the Shanghai Film Festival was taking uh, out of commission due to technical issues it's like come, who the fuck are you trying to fool man yeah that that's uh very sad <laughs> oh the same technical issues that didn't allow zhang yimu's film to play so this is two different films yeah from the con film festival and it seems so arbitrary it just seems yeah uh... the movie that they were about to show 
is a Chinese propaganda piece about the Chinese army fighting off the Japanese. And somehow that insulted them enough. Because, I don't know, China lo loses in that movie an actual historical fact. So they wanted just to push it under the carpet instead. Wow. Well, you know, I guess uh, China's censor boards are run by Cohen brothers like dum-dums. You know, <laughs> idiot bureaucrats of the kind you would see in Burn After Reading. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, Hong Kong cinema is never going to be as good as it um, was. But as I learned this week, there's still Samuel Hung films I haven't watched because I watched The Gambling Ghost. I've seen The Gambling Ghost. <laughs> three Samuel Hung for the price of one. And about as good as, you know, half a Samuel Hung. Yeah, uh, three out of five. Yeah. <laughs> but considering how eagerly I await any uh, film from the Golden Age directors now, knowing they will not be good, only to be burned every time. Right, there's a whole world of stuff you haven't seen yeah, still. there's still mediocre stuff that's better than that that I still haven't discovered. Well, that's good. All right, well, uh, thank you very much for the letter, Emil, and uh, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com and this week on Patreon we talk about a classic film? I think so. Where we talk about Taking of Pelham 123. The one that's actually the words 123, not the numbers, which is the Tony Scott remake. Yes. <laughs> We're talking about the Walter Matthau original. Mm -hmm. Why is it great? How it portrays New York? And we actually discuss our love of heist films as well. Mm -hmm. So you can check that out at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And next week. Well, we're following through on our promise. We're doing Mickey Rooney. <laughs> the biggest star in the world from 1939 to 1940. <laughs> Two whole decades. <laughs> I hope we can make that joke at least three other times. <laughs> and, you know, Mickey Rooney, what can you say about the guy? Uh, he had a huge career. Mm -hmm. So uh, We talked about him at length uh, last week. So how about we save the rest of our stuff and we can also recycle those jokes. <laughs> right. So, But a couple of things that maybe we should watch. I guess we should watch, like, what, fucking Babes in Arms or something like that? Like, yeah. one of those Mickey and Judy movies? Mm -hmm. Babes uh, in Arms has blackface in it. We also have to watch Meet the Roonies. Oh, yeah, of course. And, and the, uh, Andy Hardy. And an Andy... Oh, man, so many that I have to watch. Oh. I was going to say that the Spanish one where he plays a giant baby man. I watched a clip of it. I think I'm good. <laughs> you got it? <laughs> we'll talk about that on the podcast, yeah. though. And, uh, yeah, so we're finally going to do the definitive text on Mickey Rooney. I mean, a week. Will we have enough time to plow through that um, autobiography that he wrote? Oh, man, I hope so. <laughs> Find out about Ava Gardner's boobs. <laughs> All right, so that'll be our topic next week. Until then, I'm Justin Globe. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Big news, everybody. A bunch of episodes back. Some reader asked us, like, what book would you want to write if you dedicated yourself to that? And I said, eh, you know, I'd like to write a, a book about Albert Pune. And I did. <laughs> so, I know. You know, it's crazy what you can do if you just put your mind to it. <laughs> now, to be clear, Albert Pune is the director of such films as Captain America, the one from the 80s, mm -hmm. starring J.D. Salinger's son, uh, Sword and the Sorcerer. Mm -hmm. uh, what else has he done? So many movies. Cyborg with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah, those were the big famous one that everybody knows. He did Ticker, uh, the Steven Seagal, uh, Tom Sizemore picture. He did the famous urban, famous, uh, infamous urban trilogy, the film that stars Ice-T and Snoop Dogg. One of them has Snoop Dogg on the cover and he only appears for a minute in documentary footage during the uh, title sequence. Nice. I don't want to get too much into it because I'm sure we're going to do an episode uh, later on but Albert Pyun is a guy that was very driven, came from nothing, loved movies in a way that Jess Franco really loved movies mm -hmm. and made so many just out of the need to create. Not because 
he um, wanted money. That never seemed like a concern. Like, if Albert Pune got a bunch of money, he would spend it instantly on more movies Mm -hmm. until he had no more money and he had nothing to make movies with. And he continued to make movies. But we'll get into that later on. What I really want to talk about on this episode is Radioactive Dreams, his second film following Sword and the Sorcerer, which me and Will got to see in the cinema yesterday. Thanks to your Laser Blast Film Society, Mm -hmm. we saw it on 35mm film. And this is a a kooky post-apocalyptic uh, musical comedy action film. Yeah, action film is a stretch. But well, yeah, all yeah. of those other You know things. what I mean? Thriller? Yeah. Thriller? All of them put together. Essentially, the film of a filmmaker who has something to prove and wants to do that by going so out of the box in a way that nobody else is doing. Imagine Streets of Fire meets Mad Max. That's exactly what it is. I mean, all the problems that Streets of Fire has, mm-hmm. none of the action of Mad Max, but all of the costuming. And, and it, with, as if Dario Argento also, like, lit the film. <laughs> it stars two lovable losers, uh, one of them played by Michael Dudikoff. <laughs> yeah, Who's the yeah. other one? John Stockwell, who people know best as the lovable jock in Christine, who, hilariously, would go on to direct kickboxer sequels just like Albert Pune did. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, so they play two uh, kids who get trapped in a bomb shelter, are abandoned by the people who put them there, one of them being played by George Kennedy, <laughs> and they grow up reading pulp novels, and uh, as adults, they escape the bomb shelter and decide they're going to go into the post-apocalyptic world and be private detectives in the 40s mold. And they're, Yeah, they're dressed like old-timey newsboys, mm-hmm. and uh, the movie feels a bit disjointed. You know, it was taken away from Albert Pune, yeah. so you know, there were good moments, then there were some not so good moments mm-hmm. uh, but towards the end Michael Dudikoff and Stockwell do a soft shoe number in this post- <laughs> yeah, post-apocalyptic right. world and I thought the post-nuke shuffle and I mean that that's pretty cute well <laughs> you feel like Albert Pyun the thing about him is that he's always trying to do different stuff than you would expect like mm-hmm. Michael Dudikoff who was known as the stoic you know American ninja plays the goofiest like uh, you know, I talk like this the entire time and I'm moving and I'm saying things like zowie and oh, it's a little bit grating, but it's kind of funny because Michael Dudikoff is doing it. Yeah. Uh, and so like people who wanted to see like Michael Dudikoff play that action hero are like, what is this? Like, what is going on? Yeah. And I really like the movie because you can feel Albert Pune's passion behind it. I love the soundtrack, which is never ending. It plays over every scene. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I saw this movie and I was like, eh. It's fine because it promises this big post-apocalyptic like ah craziness and then delivers very cramped and claustrophobic movie that seems to get smaller as it goes along. Yeah, yeah. But I think that a picture like this and you know I make the argument for the Pune films that I love is that you can see that it's a guy that's passionate about making movies that he's putting all his influences in one big pot not even really thinking of how a regular audience will react to it and he's thinking outside the box yeah he is like the fact that it ends on a musical number is nuts and the fact that albert pewin like was really dedicated to it ending that way and i read an interview he's like it was supposed to be a big music number where everybody dances, but I didn't get a chance to do it. And you can tell as well, it was supposed to play in one long MGM tracking shot Mm. and they didn't get it. So there's like weird wipes through it. So it's like, you know, my love for his work is sometimes linked to, I can see what he was trying to do (laughs) and his personality is on screen and that's enough for me. And I mean, it's a bummer that Radioactive Dreams, we watched it on a print and it's unavailable 
anywhere in any proper format. I mean, it looks, it's a beautiful CinemaScope yeah. movie, and it was probably only ever watched Pan and Scan. Right? Yeah, and washed out, too. Yeah. Like, watching it up on the big screen for the second time, and because I've been watching a bunch of Laserdisc rips of it and DVDs, I'm like, wow, so that's what the colors are supposed to look <laughs> like, which is especially funny because Albert Pyun loves to play with filters, which True Heart does, to, like, make the sky different <laughs> colors. And if you don't have the colors right on that, like, it doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, it sucks. A movie like this, like, that print that we watched... That looked like it had played twice. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to go and be put in a vault somewhere, never to be spoken of again. But, you know, this is just a tease for the Albert Pyun book, which is called Radioactive Dreams, the cinema of Albert Pyun, that's going to be coming out in July. Keep an eye on Justin's Twitter feed. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to talk about it on the podcast, and I'm also going to... Uh, we'll do an episode. Like, yeah. on the week that it comes out, we'll do an episode on him. It's basically, I put limits on myself, and I went... I can't do like a biography because it's way too complicated. So I'm just going to review all of his movies and at minimum write 500 words about each of them. That was my main goal. Mm -hmm. And I succeeded in that goal. And I also got to interview three of his collaborators Mm -hmm. at length. So, uh, yep, that's the book and it's coming out soon.